0: You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle.
1: Now, for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts.
2: Hi, this is Caitlin Martin.
1: I'm Towner French.
3: This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark
1: Alderman.
4: This is Howard Schweitzer. Patrick, Mark, Towner, Caitlin, we're back. We have clarity to some degree, to a very significant degree, finally, in as far as what the next Congress will look like and what Washington is going to look like for the next couple of years. We've all been out and about this week. So Patrick, Towner, Caitlin, and I have been out and about this week and all over town had multiple clients in town. Um, we're picking up a lot of buzz as far as what people are are saying about the new dynamic in Washington Uh, But yesterday we had a historic announcement, Patrick, in Washington. Speaker Pelosi and the leadership team in the House announced that they are stepping down and remaining in Congress, but stepping down from their leadership posts. What's your, what's your, 24 hours almost later, what's your reflection? on on that announcement her tenure and and what that means for things going forward on the democratic side. Yeah,
3: it was definitely an historic day in Washington. I mean, everyone you talked to all day, it was really the only thing anyone was talking about yesterday. A lot of reflection over just an incredible career. You know, I think you had sort of the speaker's announcement and what that meant her speech was very moving Um, those who have followed and covered Nancy Pelosi know that you know oratory isn't like her greatest political talent but the speech I I was I was genuinely moved to tears I thought it was so powerful and and you just saw in the chamber how much her colleagues love and respect her uh, which I found to be just very you know neat to to watch And you had the the generational shift that took place with all of these leadership announcements kind of coinciding in the House. The fact that, you know, Majority Leader Hoyer announced that he's not going to run to maintain his position in leadership. Clyburn kind of gave a half answer. He's going to look to do something still in leadership, but not in one of the top three spots. So it was just one of those moments where you can sort of see, you know, time passing and you can see this generational shift happening in real time. And it was really nice that, you know, there wasn't as much talk, I felt like, amongst people I was talking to about the jockeying for who's up next. I think they've done a pretty nice job of setting the table for that. It was really just a reflection on her extraordinary life and career. And my wife and I watched it together last night when I got home and just, you know, talking about her transition from being a, I can't believe you make Caitlin watch all this political stuff. What is going on, Patrick? (laughs) she, she was a, she's a big speaker Pelosi fan as am I. And, and I just talking about her transition from, you know, being a a housewife and mother to rising to speaker of the house. She grew up in a political family in Baltimore. It's sort of in her blood, but just someone who, and and I'm sure others, I know Mark Howard, you got to witness it firsthand in, in your experience in Washington. Competence is the word that I just keep coming back to. She was such an effective uh practitioner of legislative politics, and she was just so good at her job. And that was what everyone focused on yesterday. I mean, there's all the, you know, is she the, the best speaker ever, you know, certainly the most consequential speaker since since Sam Rayburn, but really a focus on how good she never lost a vote on the floor. She always seemed to find the votes to get her caucus to where they needed to be. And so just someone who you know, was excellent at the job that she did. Not perfect, but.
0: Start to finish, I think one of the most remarkable dimensions of a remarkable speakership is that she was able to step down, take the next two in line with her. Yeah. And hand over the caucus to a new generation with no noise. Right. No noise. An an incredible finish to an an incredible career. I I remember uh, speaking of the speaker's contributions. January 2010, Scott Brown wins a Senate seat, beats Martha Coakley in Massachusetts. The 10 Democrats that uh, we needed for the Affordable Care Act dropped to 9 and there is widespread panic uh, in in democratic circles in Washington the strongest voice for staying the course and getting it done was Nancy Pelosi and no no Nancy Pelosi no affordable care act totally could among, not have happened without her it was, among it was- many other many other contributions so a, a towering uh, figure, whether the greatest speaker ever or not, is irrelevant. Uh, she, her her merits are are her own, and and on to a new generation of leadership.
2: Yeah. can I ask you a question, Mark Patrick? Though how does she stay a rank and file member after yeah, be, after all bizarre. that like what is this going to look like i'm so Well of there's a lot into.
3: of there's a lot of speculation about the why there i think she would very much like to see uh, one of her daughters succeed her in the house and so i think there's yeah. there's you know some of that at play i think she i think she wants to be available to be helpful. I mean, it's not something we've typically seen. I don't think she's going to stay around a whole lot longer. Um, I mean, I don't think this is some sort of... It's a
0: great question, Caitlin, because
3: that's something we've never seen before.
0: But Professor French, I'm going to give you a historical precedent. You do have former President John Quincy Adams sitting in the house of representatives for a a distinguished tenure after serving in in the white house. So, but he came back to go back a
4: long time to see somebody doing something like the diff the difference is he didn't have a private plane to take back and forth across the country and and all of a sudden have to take a commercial horse. (laughs) He just got on the same horse.
3: (laughs) Right. I will I will say for anyone I I mentioned, you know, Speaker Pelosi, like grand oratory isn't really her strength of of which she has many other strengths. But funny quips and one liners are definitely her uh, one of her strengths. And her line about staying around and saying, I have no intention of being the mother in law in the kitchen, saying my son doesn't like the stuffing that way. This is the way we make it. I don't know who couldn't have heard that and not laughed. It was just so, so perfect.
1: That was a great line. And by the way, one other thing that I would like to mention here, the Wall Street Journal had the greatest piece of information I have ever heard on Speaker Pelosi. Every day for lunch, she eats a hot dog with mustard and relish. How, is, how have we not known that? No, years no. In leadership. How have that's, we not known this? That's dis- I,
2: No way. That's actually
1: disgusting. It is the last line of the Wall Street Journal article. And then she went downstairs to get her traditional everyday hot dog with mustard and relish for lunch.
2: Well, we do know she loves Jenny's ice cream.
3: Who doesn't?
1: So,
4: but on to the next generation, which is, I think, what most Americans want across the board. Hakeem Jeffries from Brooklyn is expected to be the next minority leader now to lead the democrats a a skilled 50 something former corporate lawyer very very smart and and skilled and and well-liked legislator who who we've gotten to know quite quite well and mark uh what are your thoughts on on leadership going forward I think Hakim is going to be a, a
0: great next leader for the party. It's the per again. It's the perfect handoff. It it is in some ways Pelosi's greatest gift to the Democratic Party that she is passing this to Hakim. And, and it's remarkable to me that the next two positions are already spoken for and and filled with with no controversy. They are yeah. far less well known than uh, leader Jeffries but uh, Catherine Clark uh, from Massachusetts will be his number 2 and and that is uh, a smooth transition and uh, Congressman Aguilar from the Inland Empire in uh, California will will be number 3 so a a, a clean sweep of the broom um, and and
4: just about time I mean, that's There's the thing here three, is, though. go ahead, Towner.
1: There's still a battle for three. Joe Nagus does not step down from that race yet. And as of this morning, he has not stepped down from that race yet. So they're, they're trying to-, to
0: Nancy, Towner. Nancy
1: They're trying to edge him out, but he, he's not gone yet. So just- <laughs>
3: There well, couldn't. he's kind of getting screwed in the whole thing for the inside, yeah. because, because his plan was to go in at number four, but Clyburn is saying he's going to hang on at number four. So he's yeah. he's kind of odd man out, I think, unfortunately.
4: The uh, But it does speak, Mark, to your point, to the ability of Nancy Pelosi, I think, to manage her caucus. I mean, she, to me, that's her greatest strength. I mean, she's obviously a, a historic figure deservingly deservedly so but she you know she was able to manage a caucus that can sometimes be very difficult to manage because it's a very large tent as we say and um the fact that this is all happening smoothly i think speaks to her skill yeah but there's gonna be
3: big shoes to fill though i mean the next generational leadership which everyone's been calling for You know, you need to have the transition so that, you know, people can learn these jobs. But, you know, we're going to be entering some big legislative fights next year against a new speaker, going up against the debt limit, like some really serious stuff. And we have new leadership that's never done this before. So you've got that. And then the part we haven't talked about on the speaker's legacy, for those who follow particularly Democratic politics, she's arguably the best fundraiser in the history of the party. And, that is really where I think I mean, Reverend
0: they, Warnock, Patrick, is yeah, <laughs> yeah.
3: Reverend Warnock maybe maybe uh giving her a run for her money. But yeah, I mean her entire career has been defined by being a total rainmaker. And that is something that, you know, that that's gonna take some time to replace too.
1: I, I will uh, say one thing, and this is not a political statement at all whatsoever, but starting in the minority is actually easier than starting in the majority. Of course. Like totally. going in and 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 being able to have a little breathing room, throw some grenades, do what you need to do. Yep. You know, that's a that's a totally different ballgame than if they were coming into the majority and you have a new leadership team that's trying to figure out how to get their feet underneath
4: them. Well, trying to figure out how to actually pass bills. Right. right. When you're in the minority your job it doesn't matter whether you're sitting in a multi-member commission inside an agency or you're in the minority in congress your job is to your job is to throw grenades like you said towner and and it's much easier and so it's it actually i think works out well yeah. let's talk about the new order in washington because we know what it is now we know we have a democratic senate and a republican house we know that Counter and Caitlin, that the majority in the house is going to be thin, but you know what they call the senior Republican on a committee where there's a thin majority, thin Republican majority in the house, chairman or chairwoman. So it doesn't as, really matter.
2: As um, has been repeated many times this week, the size of the majority does not reflect the size of the gavel. A gavel is a gavel.
4: A gavel is a gavel's gavel, and and so we know what. And, and a subpoena is a subpoena is a subpoena. Right. So we know what, we we know what it's going to look like. Caitlin, what are your thoughts? You know, we've uh, we've been around town this week. What are your thoughts? What are you hearing? What are you expecting?
2: Well, look, it was obviously a, a big week for the Republicans. On Wednesday night, they finally hit two eighteen, where it became clear, abundantly clear, that they indeed took the house. It certainly, as we've discussed here, was not a massive red wave. I like to call it a very slowly trickling red tide, but again, it's not the size of the majority that reflects the gavel. We saw leadership elections this week. There was a lot of speculation on both House and Senate. We saw leadership elections this week. Um, there was a lot of conversation about a more serious challenge to Kevin McCarthy for speaker. But at the end of the day, he overwhelmingly, with only 31 defections, was voted, had the votes um, within the Republican Caucus to serve as Speaker. And I'll note, and Towner, you can kind of back me up on this, 31 defections is far less than Speaker Boehner received and even Pelosi received um, in, in past Congresses. So we uh, also saw in the race for um, Republican Whip there was a lot of conversation about whether more conservative Jim Banks was going to beat out. It was a three-way three-way race between Jim Banks, um, Tom Emmer, who was leading the NRCC this past cycle, and Drew Ferguson. And it did take two two you know it did take a second ballot, but Tom Emmer ultimately prevailed. Who, frankly, we have very strong ties to and is seen as a more Kind of moderate, certainly than than uh, Jim Banks is, and it's just the Beltway media was really kind of focusing on this conservative House Freedom Caucus versus McCarthy, and I was pleasantly surprised that again there were only thirty-one defections. We also saw this week the Senate Rick Scott. I don't know how uh, Towner, if we how deep we want to get into this this uh, political food fight within our own House and party, but. Chairman Rick Scott of the NRC NRC challenged Mitch McConnell. That was sort of a, a, a laughing joke. And failure. we call
3: it a challenge.
2: <laughs> I mean, I don't even know what you could call that, but um,
4: he got 10 was, votes, or was it 10? What, yeah, whatever think, it was,
2: yeah, it was a very small margin. Go ahead, Tanner. In you, both you,
1: cases, you, it was a freebie. In both cases, it was a foregone conclusion that Mitch McConnell was going to beat Rick Scott. It was a foregone conclusion that Kevin McCarthy in the conference vote, where you only need 51 percent was going to be selected as the speaker designate of the Republican Party. Now, that actually means nothing at the end of the day, because you have to go in the House to the House floor In the Senate. It means everything because the leadership is chosen just by that 50 percent margin. And there's no separate vote for majority leader uh, on the Senate floor. And so so those challenges were were not Uh, effective challenges. I think Rick Scott has done more and more to undermine himself uh, as he goes forward. And, and, you know, the fact that he actually got, what, 10 or 11 uh, to join him irritates me a little bit, only because some of those 10 or 11 I actually like, uh, and I, I think they have better heads on their shoulders than that. On the House side, though, sure, McCarthy had less opposition in 31 votes than Boehner did, than some of the others did. But that thirty-one contains the Freedom Caucus, and the Freedom Caucus is not one to uh, say, "All right, I'm going to throw my protest vote here in conference, and then I'm just going to drop it uh, going forward." They're a different, they're a different beast. Now McCarthy's those been are the same
3: thirty-one out. people who aren't going to raise the debt limit, and he's going to have to go find Democratic <laughs> votes next but year. Count, right. make Professor
0: his, like, French, can I ask you to just walk us briefly? through how we get from here to a Speaker of
1: the House. Yeah, you you come into session January 3rd at noon. Uh, that's when the new Congress, the 118th Congress starts. The Clerk of the House is actually in control of the House because there's no Speaker at that point. And you move directly into the Clerk having a swearing-in uh, for all the members present. And that swearing-in sets the number, the, the majority. In theory you have 435 there but you rarely do. You there's always a few folks who miss it. And then they vote for speaker. Uh by verbal uh vote. It's the it's the only verbal vote in the house. And if somebody doesn't get a majority of the entire body that has been sworn in. So if all 435 are there somebody needs 218. You could have somebody win with less than 218 they're not speaker. They that's not a winning vote. You have to have the majority of the entire house. And we have not had a multiple speaker ballot since 1923 when it went nine ballots. And before that, it was the Civil War, where actually in one year, we had a three-month delay of the House of Representatives. They took 133 ballots for speakers. So it, we could set history if McCarthy doesn't get 218 on, on January 3rd at noon. But uh, he's going out. He's talking to Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's talking to Chip Roy. I mean, he's he's doing whatever he can to find those 218 because there is a real threat that is developing right now amongst moderate Republicans who are saying we might be willing to work with Democrats. Now, I'm not convinced Democrats are able to put are willing to put somebody who is who is more grounded in the speaker's chair uh, because it doesn't work to their advantage for 2024. They'd rather see the whole you know thing burned down for two years, basically. But uh, but there's a there's a possibility that's out there.
3: I think you're right. I don't think Democrats are putting a lot of faith in finding a compromise speaker. I think they just want to watch the Republicans try to get to 218. And maybe to Caitlin's point, maybe they will. I mean, it's not, you know, things have a way of kind of clarifying. On the Senate election, I will point out, because Scott got the 10 votes, you know, and the the way we vote in the Senate is different. But I I had lunch with a client of ours who worked for former Senator Jim DeMint, who was a longtime McConnell agitator and this client and friend (laughs) said to me she said i'm watching what rick scott's doing and he has no idea how much this is going to hurt because we would do this stuff with McConnell. It never works. You never beat him. And he's just going to make your life miserable because of it. And I think that's exactly right.
1: Well, and, and one other thing I'll add, McConnell this coming year, next year, will become the longest serving Republican leader. Yeah. So there's no doubt in the world that McConnell of, serving I, of either party. In term. It, yeah. yeah
3: and historic record yes. held by Mike Mansfield right now. But yeah, that's that's a really big deal.
1: McConnell wasn't stepping down uh, at the end of this year. No, and
3: I would
4: argue that he is to the Senate what Nancy Pelosi has been
3: to the House. Very and, similar in terms of their effectiveness. I totally agree. Howard.
4: Not just their effectiveness, but these people obviously they could not be more opposite politically, but they're they're both patriots. They both love this country, they both care deeply about the, the country and and they both rule with a bit of an iron fist you can you can love their tactics you can hate their tactics we probably have both here uh maybe even within each of ourselves but they both love this country and you know we need to move on to the next generation but these are you know they they're they're emblematic of the fact that you can have policy differences, but at the end of the day they're they're not trying to burn it down
3: no, and I thought McConnell Howard put out a nice totally appropriate gentlemanly statement about Pelosi stepping down, which was in contrast to the complete and total silence from Kevin McCarthy uh who also wasn't in the chamber I mean there's just there, there is a meeting with
0: Stephen of, Miller he, he, yeah he there, there's right
3: there. there is of of these leaders and patriots, I totally agree with what you said, Howard. There there is just a certain way of handling these types of things. And, you know, I fear that uh, with the younger generation, that might not continue, but hopefully we're wrong. So let's pivot
4: away from uh, politics for a minute. We'll come back to, to 2024 and end on that. But amidst all the craziness politically, we've got just an earth shattering change in the, in the crypto landscape, the whole FTX debacle, demise, Sam Bankman freed SBF. I think when you, when you begin to be known as by your, by three initials, instead of your name, you should know that's time to get out of it, to to move away from it, but that you've got an issue just Mark, it's just been crazy what's going on in that world. And I think it's fascinating how Washington has reacted to it. Counter, in our travels yesterday, having nothing to do with that, right. people were talking about it. Mm-hmm. Legislators that we were talking to were talking about it. And um, I just think it's interest. It's an interesting case study in how Washington operates or or doesn't in some cases.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a it's a source of campaign donations in a big way (laughs) for members of Congress. So they have a they have a built in interest here, certainly. Um, But there's a lot of folks who who would like to see some policy in the space. And I think the question is, you know, now that this has happened, I I think the real understanding is that members of Congress feel like they need to step in and regulate. So this is going to create a very interesting 2023, I think, moving forward. Well, there's Our a whole help, what, help what is us, the role help of government of thing.
0: Us, help, help those of us who are amateurs at crypto. H- help us understand what exactly happened and and what it means for the broader financial system. Is this a contagion that's going to infect the rest of the financial system? Or is this just some Wild West show it's an outlier to to the rest of the economy
4: it's the the latter it's wild west it's not right. going to reverberate out to the broader economy or the broader financial system because it really wasn't part of the financial system people were investing money through ftx they were obviously have been investing money in digital assets or cryptocurrency but it's fairly self-contained. And I mean, in a sense, it's not different from what happened in 08. FTX was using, they were taking in deposits and using customer funds to buy assets that uh, diminished in value over time and and they became illiquid. The, the difference is it's it's crypto and it's not it's not the banking system. It's not in the traditional legacy f- financial system, and so it's not going to reverberate. And as much as regulators were asleep at the wheel in, you know, oh seven oh eight, there was a first of all, the scale is is very very different. Second of all, y- you had a built in system with through the fed to come in and stabilize the the financial system and so it's it's fundamentally it's fundamentally different mark I, in that regard
1: you know i will say though congress after 0708 changed the laws for banks they stepped in with dodd-frank and yeah. they started regulating the heck out of banks and so did the federal agencies and so I, You know, I think there is there is going to be a drive. I think members of Congress feel like they have egg on their face as well. There are a lot of members of Congress who backed up. SBF uh through congressional hearings called him you know a genius listened to his testimony uh the whole deal his
2: campaign donations
1: campaign donations on on both sides i would i would add uh through through the various uh principal entities uh that were under his uh, his purview so i i think i think there's there's about to be some punishment that happens or that members of congress want to deliver and i think the agencies are trying to figure out how to do the same it's going to be an interesting year. I mean, I think from a lobbying perspective, cryptocurrency just got really interesting. It isn't about it isn't about how the entity of crypto, you know, survives in this unregulated environment. I think now it's about how, you know, you talk to members of Congress and regulators uh about moving forward uh under some sort of guideline. Uh that, that there has and that is well, exactly inherently anti-crypto To have a government guideline well the you're
4: right i mean as you know we have clients in the space and and it's completely what's happening is completely consistent with with our message in that situation because that's blockchain and technology based and we actually go around town talking about the crypto casino and getting rid of the crypto casino it's a it's a casino it's gambling it's it's nothing unless you can use digital assets for a useful purpose they really have no no inherent value and it is a casino i think members of congress have known that to some degree but they now now they really know it They're, on the other hand towner i think Bitcoin has, BTC has already lost over two-thirds of its value. Mm-hmm. And query weather, government is always, regulators are always late to the party. Yeah, And in some ways, I think they're going to be content to let the markets determine what happens here and just let let it implode on itself.
1: There's a lot of people that lost money, uh, and this That's is true. This is baseball cards and Beanie Babies, and if you're planning on sending your co- your kid to college on baseball cards and Beanie Babies you might want to try a different method and that's essentially what people are doing here uh this is this is fun money stuff this isn't like your life savings should be in bitcoin i had to talk my mom down from the ledge about 6 months ago cuz she wanted to start investing in cryptocurrency and i was like no you're you're going to retirement. I, I think do sally
4: that. i think sally needs to come on the podcast I,
1: I I'm worried about that. I'm worried about that significantly.
4: <laughs> As I told my friend Joel, when Joel and Carm Joel and his mother Carmela start talking about buying crypto, it's time to uh, shut yeah. down the system. <laughs> right. Sorry, Joel. Mark, is there Howard? When
0: you say regulators may be tempted to let the market decide, is there an R versus D dimension? to this or is everybody so new to the game that it hasn't become partisan
4: everybody's so new to the game there's more support on the republican side for the free to be you and me like let you know keep the market regulation light kind of historically but mm-hmm. i'll tell you i've talked to a lot of d's and a lot of r's over the past couple of years about crypto And the daylight just isn't there. It's more there are maybe five members on Capitol Hill that truly understand it. And it's more about trying to understand it and less about D versus R politics.
1: Yeah, but Congress is going to dip their toe in the water on stable coins first. Um, that's that's where they want to go legislatively. McHenry, uh, who's going to be taking over chair of the Financial Services Committee in the House and, and Waters, who's going to be moving from chair to ranking member, they're in fairly good lockstep on stablecoin legislation that they want to move forward. And stablecoins are essentially like, think Western Union, Mark. You, you turn in $1 and you get one whatever stablecoin and that is digital and it can be moved anywhere uh, around the globe, but it's always a dollar theoretically that's backing up. That they're, so when somebody withdraws it, the money's there.
4: They're they're money market funds. Counter yes. is the way to think about them. It's a dollar is a dollar is a dollar in money market fund terms. And what until it what, isn't it, until it isn't what ta- what began the contagion in in was money market funds breaking the buck. Um, that's when the value of your interest on in a money market fund dipped below the dollar for dollar parity that created a run on the bank, which created contagion, which spread out to the broader financial system. And that's what they're concerned about with stable coins. There are different kinds of stable coins. There are algorithmic stable coins where AI is supposed to keep parity. Those have already been undermined. (laughs) Then there are asset-backed stable coins. Tether is supposed to be asset-backed. And I think it's not just The republicans and the democrats but also the administration that's where they focused a lot of their energy because that underpins crypto um i think there too they may be late to the party and let's let's see what happens but it's it's interesting i'll also say you know i I think popular media has become became obsessed with sbf as part of the ascendance of crypto. And now... Giselle, is
2: this, Giselle and Tom Brady, right? Uh,
4: exactly. Yeah. Separately. I like knew contribute something
2: to this topic.
4: Yeah. Separately, I mean, of course,
2: well, and it, it
0: We're seeing the infanticide uh, of the media. The media gives birth to these people and then kills them.
4: Yeah, and, and that's a perfect segue, but I'm not ready to segue <laughs> lie, because... <laughs> Because I, I want to say, Howard. <laughs> be, because I want to say that I mean, what's what I learned in government, where I was faced multiple times with people trying to perpetrate fraud on the government. What I what I learned is that fraudsters they don't hang out in the shadows; they get in your face. They are front and center. SBF was a fraud if you read text messages he's exchanged with the reporters in the last few days, which by the way, he's an idiot for sending. He knew, I mean, he was a fraud and they don't hide in the shadows. And so I I think hopefully we all learn a little bit of a lesson from this. If it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. (laughs) And it's just, it's just amazing. But Mark, the media buildeth up and the media taketh down. Let's talk about 2024 and and end there. Caitlin, you were down at the Republican Governors Association meeting this week. We had the former president announce a run for the third time, and you were down with the governor's. Several potential presidential candidates for the Republicans were there. What?
2: How was that received? It was received as a whisper and frankly was not addressed. It was sort of ignored, which I frankly appreciated. Look, I love our Republican governors. We had Chris Sununu up on stage talking about the need for more civility and turning a corner and turning a page and having a new positive face to the Republican Party, you had um, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie speaking with the governors in a private meeting before we all got there, you know, addressing that um, it's time to turn the page on Trump and that voters rejected crazy in the 2022 midterms and that Trump lost us seats in 2018, 2020, and 2022 um he noted that you know when when um there there were 31 GOP governors back in, in 2014 before Trump took office in 16 and now there are 26 he we, we've got he he pointed to the fact that RGA did get involved in primaries where need be and also did not support and waste money on problematic candidates just because they had an R next to their name you had you know, DeSantis speaking, he he was received with a standing ovation the night before. And he, everyone wants to ask him about his thoughts with 2024. And he's telling everyone, just chill, guys. I just got elected governor. But he also, you know, quipped, look at the scoreboard from t- last Tuesday night. Look at what we did in Florida versus what these Trump candidates did across the nation. Um, I was pleased to be uh, in in a room and with a group. And I know I've talked about this before with our governors where we're frankly not talking about Trump. And that's a good thing. Just last night, Christy Noam, the governor um, of South Dakota uh, came out and, and said, we need to turn a page. She was probably arguably the most pro Trump of some of these governors. So he was uh, the, the announcement was going on at the same time as, as this event. And it was largely ignored, which I think is proof positive of what I've been saying about turning the page. And I think that's a a positive.
4: Yeah. Well, it, it feels like to me and Mark, you and I just got back from a country where the former prime minister is under investigation for for corruption and people think he wants his way back into power to stave off those criminal charges in, in Benjamin Netanyahu, it, it feels to me like, and he he won, and, and he won. It feels to me like that's why Trump is is get getting back in the game. It's a desperate, feels to me like a desperate attempt to try to deal with the inevitable.
2: A desperate, very low energy attempt, I might add.
4: Yeah, low energy, Donald. There was not think, a lot of energy in that announcement.
2: The
0: uh, announcement in 2015 was overreported. And we've all talked before about the role of the media in inventing Donald Trump as a presidential candidate. I I think we're going to now see the deconstruction of that. And my ho- hope, two, two prayers for the country. One that Caitlin is right. I've never rooted harder for Caitlin to be right about anything. And and I think she is. I think you are. But also, let's just ignore the guy. Instead of covering his collapse, my prayer for the country is we just stop talking about him.
2: And that's yeah. largely what I was seeing at RGA. Right. Complete ignore.
4: Right. Yeah. Fascinating. All right. Well, let's let's end here. We've lost Patrick, but we will we will not be doing a podcast next week, uh, but it is Thanksgiving.
1: Happy Thanksgiving
4: and as we've done before on the beltway briefing let's let's go around the room and uh mention what we're thankful for. i I'll, I'll go first, give you all a second to think. first of all, I'm thankful for all of you and all of our colleagues and our great team and 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 the firm. I'm grateful and thankful for health and and my family and i am thankful for uh the restoration apropos of our last discussion of what feels like a little bit of a return to normalcy from a political point of view which doesn't mean that everybody agrees disagreement is part of democracy and and healthy but i'm thankful that it feels like um, we're headed toward a better place, and and I think the world sees it, and and that's pretty awesome, Towner.
1: Well, first I'm going to steal Mark's. Uh, I, I'm uh, I'm thankful for a peaceful transition of power, uh, even though Mark will say that after me. I think he should. Uh, and and that's number one. Number two is sort of a a, ca- a a slight change of yours, Howard. I'm grateful for a return to normal the chaos of congress is happening leadership elections we're on capitol hill we're talking to members of congress the pandemic is in the rearview mirror um you know life is uh, it's for the most part back to normal again uh and and i like that i like we spent every day this week on capitol hill talking to members and staff uh taking clients around uh it was just a it was a normal 2019 right. week. Yeah, it was.
4: It was. We were in the agencies, we were on the hill. It was, it felt really good.
1: Yeah.
4: Caitlin.
2: Well, I'll be I'll be real thankful when they finally fully reopen those houses and an office buildings so we don't have to stand outside in the freezing cold waiting for <laughs> That's so <laughs> true. Very thankful for a return to some normalcy. Thankful that it seems like we are turning a page. Um uh, thankful that some of these anti-democratic, you know, as well, yes, it sounded like I was really rooting and I was in some ways for a red wave but digging down in some of these candidates. I'm thankful that some of these crazy election denying candidates lost and I'm looking forward to, you know, a great 2023 and thankful as always for our wonderful colleagues, no matter where we all come from and our backgrounds and we're always collegial. We're, we're like a family here and just thankful for you all.
1: I think, Caitlin, people don't understand. We have the the funnest lobbying firm on Capitol Hill in the in the agencies. Everybody says it.
2: Great. Paraphrase. Trump.
1: Everybody says it.
0: Uh, Mark. Not much left to say. I couldn't agree more with all of the above uh, my family, my friends, my colleagues here on the screen and and beyond. And just to say what all of you have said in in different words, I'm thankful for the American people and the American electorate and the American voters who split their tickets. I, I think the theme of this election was ticket splitting. And I think it is amazing to use an Israeli word, Howard. Amazing. Just amazing that the American people went to the polls. Not enough. We still got to do better on that voter participation. But the American people went to the polls and said, I'll take this guy and I'll take that one, but not so much these others. People went in and and split their tickets and and delivered some some hope for the next two years here. so thanks to all of you and and thanks to our listeners and thanks to everybody who voted
4: and mark Towner Caitlin and I are thankful that it's your birthday next week. That so is happy birthday happy Thank birthday you. it's a it's happy a big
2: birthday Mark Towner it's... I think you have something to add.
1: Do you want me to do the Banner birthday song? Yes, please. All right, ready? This is your birthday song. It doesn't last too long. Hey!
4: There you go.
0: Happy birthday, Mark. I am grateful for that, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank
4: you. See you, guys.
0: You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio,
3: Washington, D.C.